interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. If I may, just a, a brief advertisement. I'm privileged to be a part of Redeemer Seminary in Dallas. Uh, it was started by Westminster in Philadelphia, my alma mater. And um, we started it actually from the seminary and then also from uh, our church in Dallas, uh, where I was the pastor for many years. And the seminary grew very slowly. And uh, finally, we got a dean that came down from Philadelphia. And then it grew more rapidly. And um, today, we're we're... It's really very exciting. We um, went independent a year ago from Westminster, and a very natural and good thing that we did, I think, and we changed our name in the process uh, to Redeemer Seminary just to kind of indicate a new start, a fresh start. And uh, we have uh, 100 students now uh, and growing uh, really by leaps and bounds. Um, Some interesting things about the seminary uh, that are, they're not necessarily unique, but they are things that we emphasize, and one is some of what I've been talking about here with you, and that is, uh, you can call it Christian discipleship or Christian formation, but we really believe that our job is to form a person, not just form a mind, uh, and so we take that pretty seriously. If you'd be interested in just looking at something about the seminary, we've got our faculty in here, we have wonderful faculty, and a little bit about our programs, Um, pick one of these up uh, at your leisure. Okay, um, I am going to change slightly, um, though these things go together so easily. I'm going to, instead of humility, I'm going to talk about what what has to precede humility, and that's honesty. Um, And uh, this is a more topical kind of approach uh, than a particular text, um, and uh, it reflects, um, I think, biblical truths, of course, um, about what it means for us to understand <clears throat> uh, honesty perhaps at a, at a different level um, than we have um, before. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's cash register honesty is the way I like to call it. You know, when they give you too much change at the cash register in the grocery store and you're walking out and you realize they gave you too much change and you, you go back, you know, and you, give, you, you rectify it. That's, that's good. I would not <laughs> discourage you from doing that. But that's not the deepest level of honesty we need to get to in our lives. Um, it, it is, there is an honesty that has to do with the way we perceive ourselves, the way we understand ourselves in this world, the way we understand the gospel and the gospel's um, um, effect on our hearts and on our lives. Um, there's a wonderful book, if you've not seen it, um, Called uh, by, by written by Dan Allender, who's a seminary classmate of mine, called "To Be Told," um, and it's uh, <clears throat> really excellent. Dan um, is a got he has a, a theology degree, but he also has a PhD in psychology and has been a counselor for many many years. He's uh, he's really a very very unusual person, um, 
but he has written a number of books about very hard issues in people's lives. Um, one of his books is called Bold Love, which deals with sexual abuse, um, and his, part of his ministry has been dealing with people who have been through one form of sexual abuse uh, or another, in, perhaps earlier in their lives. And uh, this book, To Be Told, is basically his plea for a, a, a kind of honesty that's new and refreshing. But let me let me start on this tact. Um, in a sense, it would be good if the, we had all the college students here like we did last night because they are making lots of life decisions, aren't they? And, of course, we are too. Uh, you know, just when you think you've probably got all of life's decisions made, uh, you know, up crop some new ones. And uh, I was talking with... Uh, someone yesterday about the fact that, uh, you know, when you're in those years in your 30s and 40s, they seem to be the greatest pressure time in terms of your career, your occupation, uh, but they're also the greatest years of importance in terms of raising your family, your, your small children at that point, and at the same time, one's parents are starting to get older and they have needs and it seems like a person is really divided in, in, in a lot of different ways. And life decisions have to get made. In keeping with um, what we were talking about last time, Jennifer, are you still here? Uh, she, I guess she left. Oh, there she is, back there. Jennifer spoke to me and said that um, one of the things that sh- she's had to do a- as the mother of, uh, of four, but two of her children um, are mildly autistic and that has rearranged her life and made made life decisions where, in a sense, she's had to shelve some of her strengths, some of the things she might like to do in terms of career or her abilities in order to focus on the, the, the one acre that God's given her to plow right here. That's the acre God's given her. And we always have to make those decisions. You know, what one acre is my acre at this time of my life? How do I make these decisions? Why should I do what I do? You know, um, uh, what has made me me? And how do I make the kinds of even career or vocational decisions that have been highlighted here in our questions are, are very important because we are to be stewards of our gifts. Um, <clears throat> what about the Lord is my life particularly enabled by his grace and by my experience to show others? It's got to be a question I answer as I think about who I am and what I'm supposed to do with my life. You know, it's not just that I maybe have the gifts to be a chemical engineer. It's also that God has done certain things in my life that give me a life story to tell people. Not, uh, and, and so the decisions I make are decisions about the whole of who I am and not just the career part of who I am. Um, in other words, <clears throat> what is it about God's story, we might say? Because that's what the scripture is. God's story of creation, fall, redemption, and glory or consummation. That's what the Bible is, right? What about God's great story does my particular story reveal? And uh, that's a very, th- very thoughtful question, I think, if you, you know, you don't reveal everything in equal measure about God's story. But there are certain parts, I would dare say, of, of God's creation story, God's, you know, the, the, the story of the fall, um, the story of, of uh, 
you know, the world's need, the story of redemption. Um, what, what is it about these stories, these aspects of God's story, that my life reveals? Because that's something that I think the Lord intends for me to use as a steward in my life. Uh, Allender says, your story helps reveal the greatest story, the story God is telling about himself. And I can't, I really can't tell my story or use it for the decisions I need to make until I know it. And what is tricky about that is that we have to read it backwards in our lives. Um, we find that, you know, we have to live our lives forward, but we only understand our lives backwards. And so we really have to look in two directions at once. Even as we stay present in this moment, we have to look back and say, what's made me me? What, what are the circumstances? What are the issues? What are the trials? What are the hardships? What are the good things, the joys? What has God packaged in me that is part of the story that I am to, to use in speaking to others? We find the meaning in our stories in a certain sense in what God has already written. So, for example, the things that led me to addiction are rooted in a fear that I have of inability to perform adequately, to, uh, to make you think well of me, uh, a fear about life in general that somewhere along the line necessitated that I begin to control things. So, you know, my story isn't just that I started taking narcotic medicine uh, because I had, you know, painful surgeries or whatever, and that led to uh, an addiction. That's not the story. The story is behind the story. The story is what happened that led me to take that narcotic pill the first time I didn't really need it. That's the story. And in order to understand that, my point is, you, you see what I'm saying, we have, to, we have to look back and begin to understand ourselves. God is sovereign over my story, right? He is the potter and I'm the clay. But we're not inanimate objects. God intends that we write our stories with him. But before I can write <clears throat> uh, the story forward, I have to understand it backwards, as I've said the events and the people in my life that occur between the fall and redemption, you might say, in my story, and even the ones since redemption. I have to understand those things. And this is not a big Freudian deal. This is not sort of looking back in all these weird psychological ways. It's just, it's just the logic. It's just simple, clear logic. Who are you and who am I is affected by the experiences we've had, the people we've known, the upbringings that we've had, and, uh, and so forth. Some of these are good experiences. Happily, aren't they? Many of them are good. But it's also true that some of them are bad experiences. And like it or not, I think it's the bad experiences that we have to focus on a little bit more because they are the ones that actually shape us in some ways more than the good ones. They, we really need to listen. We listen to our needs, not our triumphs, because we find in our needs the things 
as I've been saying, the places where God really meets us. Allender says, a merely good life reveals little beyond the fact that goodness exists. <laughs> Not like that. A good life is great. But, you know, when people, and we hear this down in my part of the country a lot, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm just so blessed. God has blessed me. And then you say, oh, really, how? And they start listing, you know, the successes they've had in everything from, you know, University of Texas winning the football game to, um, you know, to the, the, their particular vocational accomplishments or to how well their children are doing. And I listen to that and I say, I don't think God's blessed you. I'm careful about the way I say that. <laughs> but you see, I think that God's blessing comes not always in the outward manifestations of good things. It comes in the way the Lord meets us <clears throat> in the more difficult areas of our lives. And this is because my story is not intended to merely reveal a moral lesson. That's not the purpose of my story. And a lot of Christians, as we know, um, you know, especially, in, uh, you know, maybe in places where you feel more isolated and hunkered down and, you know, uh, Ken and I were just talking about this a little bit. There's this sense of defensiveness that gets in there and, the Christianity we start to live comes out like moral pronouncements. Be good. Do good. Don't do that. That's bad. And that's not Christianity. We, don't, we know that, right? That kind of moralism is not where uh, the story is really told. And so my story can't just simply be a moral lesson. But rather, what is the story? The story of the redeeming love and grace of God told in the story of Jesus Christ. That's the story. And in a sense, it's God's story, not mine. You know, God takes the sin that we have done and the sin that has been done to us. And he writes with that a story, not of failure or grief, but of, and I'm not going to say triumph, It's a story of love. That's the story that gets written. The story of God's love to us in Christ that then becomes the love that is shared with others. That really is the, is the real story. Flannery O'Connor, great Southern writer, said that the meaning, uh, the meaning is in the story. And I think that's an interesting way to put it. It, it, you don't get a moral lesson. You don't put a sort of a, you know, therefore at the end of a, a particular episode in your life. Therefore, this is what I learned. That, there's something to that. But the real way it happens is, is in the story itself. Living in the story. Your story. God's story. Jesus' own story is a story of failure turned to Love? Yes, love. And love is the source of the triumph of Christ's story. It isn't just that the resurrection, you see, is the product of God's power. It's the product, as, you were, as it were, of God's love for his son. So sometimes stories that 
don't look very good actually have very, very powerful things to teach us. Let me give you one example that I came across from a little bit, it's a little bit dated. The story is the story of John Donne, the uh, famous, uh, one of England's greatest poets. He lived in the late 16th and early 17th century. He wrote, you know, things that we are very familiar with, like Ask Not for Whom the Bell Tolls and No Man is an Island. What a lot of people don't know about John Young is some of the twists and turns in his own life. His father died when he was three years old. In Protestant England, he was hounded for his Catholic faith. He was uh, distinguished at Oxford and Cambridge, but he was denied degrees from those universities because he was Catholic. And he rebelled, and he went out, and he just, you know, lived a debauched life for a time, sexual exploits and so forth. Finally, he, he married the love of his life, a woman named Anne, but Anne's father so hated John Donne that he had him uh, fired from his job as secretary to a nobleman and thrown in prison. Some father-in-law, huh? In fact, the shortest poem that Donne ever wrote was when he was in prison, and it goes like this. John Donne, Anne Donne, undone. He was released from prison finally, lived in poverty, much sickness, near death. He actually wrote an essay, an extended essay, uh, describing the advantages of suicide. Finally, he converted to the Church of England, you know, the Anglican, Protestant Anglican Church, and went into the priesthood. And believe it or not, became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London very quickly. I don't know how that happened that quickly. You know, St. Paul's is a great, great cathedral in London. But very shortly thereafter, he fell sick from the plague and died. Now, what kind of life is this? You know, how, where and how do we find a sense of, of meaning in that life, purpose? Well, you know where you find it? Right here. In the silences you're thinking about. Someone once said that the meaning is between the words. You see, you've really listened attentively in the last minute as I've talked about Don John then because you're kind of wondering, what does this mean? How can I? And then you're thinking about your own life, you know? What about the triumphs and the difficulties and pains of my own life? And I can't tell you that, okay, out of this comes a point. Here's the point. This is the point of your life, or this is the point of John Donne's life. Much less for those of us who are preachers like, you know, Dave and Ken and Steve and others of us, you know, uh, and uh, Larry, can I say, uh, well, here's three points in a poem. I don't have three points in a poem about John Donne's life. And oftentimes we don't. But life isn't lived in such a neat way, is it? At least mine isn't. And, and it's sort of in the experience itself that I learn. And sometimes the learning takes a long time for me to put in words before I can actually say to you, I've got something to say. That's why listening is so important. Listening to the Lord and his word listening to others, 
and listening to myself. But most of us are moving much too fast to know how to listen. But it's only in the listening that I get the meaning, and then even then the meaning isn't always what I think it's supposed to be. It's, this is actually true, This what I'm about ready to tell you. The Washington Post did an experiment a couple years ago. Um, there was a guy uh, playing violin in the Washington Metro, one of the Washington Metro stops. And he was playing violin. He had his violin case open, you know, for people to put money in. And he did it for one hour. And in the course of that hour, um, he got about 30 bucks, I think, of people just dropping stuff in, which is not bad, I guess. But the interesting thing was how people went by and they sort of would listen for a minute and then they'd move on quickly. And the children would be dragged along, you know, and, and the children would look back and want to look and stay, but the mothers, you know, would you know, hurry them on. And um, there was this, ve- you know, very, very inattentive, for the most part. You know, oh, there's a sound. Okay, it's interesting. Move on. Um, an hour later, he packed up his violin and left. The man's name was Joshua Bell. And Joshua Bell is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, violinist in the world today. And he was playing on an instrument that cost $3.5 million dollars. And the previous week, he'd been in Symphony Hall in Boston, hundreds of dollars for a ticket to hear him. And what that says, is, it says a lot of lessons from that. Context determines the way you listen. You don't expect to hear Joshua Bell in the subway. So, you know, but, but it also means that we don't, we don't really know how to listen much. And I, I think part of what we need to learn to get honest, which is the theme of what I'm trying to say here, is to is to learn how to listen to God and to others and to ourselves. So often I'm moving so quickly, I, I'm so wanting to say what I want to say that I'm thinking about it while you're talking, and the minute you take a breath, I jump in with what I want to say, which is really an insult if you think about it, because you're, you're really not listening. That's why greatest conversations sometimes have pauses, sometimes even long pauses, in between what people are saying. Honesty, learning how to be honest. Polonius says to Laertes in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. But do you know what the couplet is to that? Lest thee be false to every man. In other words, you can't be true to other people until we begin to be true to ourselves. Psalm 15 verse 2 says, speak the truth to my own heart. And truth, therefore, you know, has a lot to do with the notion of truthfulness. They go together. A lot of times I actually think that that where the word truth appears in the Bible, you could easily substitute the word truthfulness and be completely fair exegetically, but it brings out some interesting meaning. Those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Well, what about spirit and truthfulness? That is truly worship. Um, Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil is not out there in the world somewhere. On that side is good, and I want to be on that side. The other side is evil. 
He says, no, the line between good and evil runs right through every person's heart. And that's our story. Um, I don't know if any of you have read Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Some people think it's the most, one of the most important novels of the 20th century. It's, uh, it's got a narrator, and the narrator is a man named Marlowe. And at one point, Marlowe says this. You've got to listen to this to get it. It's really interesting. For it is my belief that no man ever understands his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. It is my belief that no man really understands his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. In other words, we don't want to be honest with ourselves. Dishonesty about myself grows like kudzu. You don't have kudzu up in this part of the country, do you? In the South, we got a lot of kudzu, okay? And if it just grows and grows and grows so fast, it's a terrible weed. It just takes over. And if you don't cut it back every day, it'll take over. Honesty is like that. If you don't cut back dishonesty every day, it will grow in our lives until it takes over. And we then we just begin to live in this land of, of not knowing the difference between what is true and what is not. Solzhenitsyn also said this. He said, if he was speaking about Russia or Soviet Union and totalitarianism, he says, if we're ever to redeem the individual from totalitarianism, the first thing we must teach him is to stop lying. And he said that because totalitarianism was built on lies. Just lie after lie after lie. But I think it also has to do with our own lives, maybe in a very personal way. What is it we believe about ourselves? Have we really reckoned with the the meaning, the hard things, um, as well as the good things? George Orwell put it this way. In an age of universal deceit, speaking the truth is a revolutionary act. You know, my story is really the story behind the story. And I, I won't go into a lot of detail, but I, I'll just use a couple things as an example that maybe help you see the sort of things that I mean. My mother was a very, very beautiful woman. She was a Vogue model in the 1940s during World War II. But she was the only child and only daughter <clears throat> of a man who was a terrible alcoholic. And they sent her away to boarding school when she was in the sixth grade because living at home was just impossible. In fact, her father died when he was in his mid to late 40s from alcoholism. And my mother grew up with a tremendous need, uh, a tremendous hole in her heart. And that became reflected in the way she approached her marriage to my father, who was an Annapolis graduate, went to fight in submarines in World War II, and wanted to make the Navy his career. But after the war, my mother couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand his absences because she needed him. That's not necessarily wrong, but so he, he left the Navy. But their marriage was really basically a battle between whether my father was going to give her the attention she wanted or give anything else his attention. And the children in that family, me as the firstborn primarily, became 
a kind of pawn in that battle. This is not Freudian stuff, folks. This is just looking at your life and being logical about what happened to you. And as a result of that, I kind of lived my life believing as a child that my purpose, my sole purpose in the world was to make this lovely lady, and she was a lovely lady, feel good about herself. And when I would fail to do that, I felt awful. And I knew that I had failed to do it. So my story is growing up wanting to please people. And it's even a little deeper than that. My mom, because she didn't have siblings, because she really came from a very, very d difficult family herself, she, w when she was, you know, 27, whatever age, she wanted to have children like all everyone else was. But she didn't want to be a mother. She didn't know how to be a mother. And so, um, you know, when she was pregnant, she was eight and a half months pregnant with me and was proud of the fact that she didn't look very pregnant. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? You see, my point in telling you this is it's not a sob story. It's, it's your story, too. I mean, you, every one of us has stuff like that. Because your parenting is not perfect any more than your parents' parenting was perfect. And believe it or not, even though you think you've been perfect, your kids' parenting of their children won't be perfect. So we all have our stuff. We all have our stories. And the dishonesty for me that came out of performance and pleasing and the fear, well, it just, it just became too much after a while. You know, perfectionism is a code word for dishonesty. Really, because no one's going to be perfect. So I learned early on to perform for you, but really inwardly to disengage, to hide, to protect myself. If you knew me, you wouldn't like me. So I learned to please others to prove my value, my worth. And, you know, the funny thing is that so much of this was obvious in my adult life. I think of the people that knew me the most. It was really obvious. And they would gently try and tell me these things, but I, I couldn't hear it. I was too caught up in my own performance. Um, Connie, Connie uh, uh, Chung was an NBC News commentator. Remember her? Chinese woman. And she, um, she told us a story on herself. She says that when she was a child, she uh, walking to school, she didn't want her parents to walk with her because she wanted to go into school by herself because she didn't want anyone to know that she was Chinese. Isn't that funny? I mean, isn't that the way so much of us are? I love this. If any of you have ever tried to get through Brothers Karamazov, and I'll be honest with you, I've tried five times and I've never made it. So there, see, I'm being honest. I'd like to tell you, oh, just sort of tell you, you know, quote from Brothers K like I was real, real knowledgeable about it. But uh, the honest truth is that I found it very difficult. But I do know enough to know that there's a character in um, Brothers K called Father Zosima, who is the real kind of hero. He's a real godly and honest man. 
And he says this in the book, the man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks to bestiality in his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. Well, maybe we're not that bad. But I do think that there are some issues, stuff about us, that as it comes out, it begins to be the source of our own healing. St. Thomas's medieval saint, he said, if you do not bring out what is within you, it will kill you. But if you do bring out what is within you, it will heal you. And the same thing is echoing John in 1 John. That if we bring to light what is happening in our lives, <clears throat> the sin and all the rest of it, that the, the healing occurs as we bring it to the light of God's love and his grace and forgiveness. And the truth, of course, is that when one of us begins to tell our story, others open up their hearts. It gives people the freedom. And I, I really want to tell you, dear friends, we are bound by our own dishonesty about ourselves. We are our secrets. You never get beyond your secrets. And I don't care how bad it is or how much you've never told anybody something, whatever it is, it, we need to learn to tell somebody that thing. Because only in the telling can we uh, know um, a sense of the Lord's freedom and love and forgiveness. Dishonesty comes, as we've said before, from pride and fear. In fact, really, the fear that causes me to be dishonest gives way to a kind of false pride, doesn't it? Perfect love casts out fear. But what if I've closed myself off to that perfect love? What, even if I profess Christ and I believe in Jesus and his gospel, what if somehow I don't really live in his love? His love is just a category. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a cognitive idea, but it hasn't gotten down here. Longest journey, remember, I think we said that last night. Longest journey anyone will ever take is from our head to our hearts. What if love hasn't gotten down there? How am I to learn the gospel of love? I think it's not always easy. And sometimes the Lord leads us to a crash. In some ways, it's like what happened to me, very public, very awful in a way. But for some of us, it's not usually that. It's, it's, usually, um, it's usually that we bear burdens and heartaches that the Lord intends to use to get us to a deeper level of honesty. And only when we begin to be honest about those things and real about them do we begin, I think, to 
find our way out of the paper bag. I, I, this is a couple years ago, well, maybe about five years ago now. My son, who was then a junior in college, we were having a conversation about this. I sometimes think our children, you know, say some words to us. Because after my son said this, I quickly wrote it down. He said, Dad, what is more important to you? To be thought of well or to be honest? Mm -hmm. Then he said this, honesty is too easily usurped by the need for approval. Then he said, honesty does not need to be defended with many words. But being thought well of takes many, many words. And too many words in our life is a sign that honesty is slipping into the background. And then he quoted the proverb, with many words there is much danger. Yeah, what do you do when your son tells that stuff to you? In part, you you start to rejoice. Um, You see, addictions of any kind or preoccupations of any kind or enchantment with my own accomplishments of any kind really become a way of anesthetizing me from the truth. And that's where I think we need to um, we need to begin to see where we do that ourselves. You know, three responses that, you know, when people start to be vulnerable and honest, kind of the way I'm doing, I've done with you, I hope and pray I've not done it as a show, I'm really trying to do it in order to love you. I, I believe that's my motive as I've prayed through it. There, but there's often three responses that you get w- when that happens. The first is, don't be so hard on yourself. And the second is, um, what time do the bills play? Isn't that your team up here, the bills? And, and the third one is, Just trust God. We don't know what to do with that kind of honesty. And so, you know, it's almost like we have to be careful not to just sort of vomit on people. But we do need to learn to walk in the truth and to live in the truth. And to really realize that in the balance, it is more important for me to be honest than it is for me to be thought well of. The longest journey that we will ever take is from our heads to our hearts. If the things about Christ and his truth and the truthfulness to which he calls us remain cognitive, they will never change me. If the things about me, my past, my, my 
present, what's shaped me, if these things remain cognitive memories only, then my real story will be locked away in a vault and it won't help me or uh, anyone else. So, yes, when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, which is, by the way, as you may know, is the most inscribed inscription on any uh, on any university building in our country. In other words, more universities have that inscribed on some building on their campus than anything else. Yes, and in many, most universities don't, they take it out of context. They abstract the notion of truth, of course, and and um, don't really understand the context in which it was said. When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, he was, of course, speaking about what? He was speaking about the truth of the gospel. But in order to understand the gospel, you've got to understand the truth about yourself. You don't understand the gospel if you don't wrestle with the truth of who you are. The truth of the gospel depends on the truth of you. That's what Calvin said. That's what Blaise Pascal said. As I mentioned earlier. So it goes hand in hand. I want to go deeper with the Lord and understand Him and His Word and His truth. And to walk with Him, in Him, and through Him. In order to do that, I also need to go deeper with myself. 